You can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. So by God's grace, and I, and I guess by God's plan, definitely by God's plan, uh, he, he's allowed me to travel uh, and, and worship with Christians on five different continents. And in doing, in doing that, there's a bunch of different things uh, that you experience, that you see in worshiping, worshiping with believers in these different cultures, um, in these different contexts, and in these different languages. And one, it just, it just sheds a whole new light on the God that we worship. Uh, but two, it, it sheds a whole new light on the unique bond that we as Christians share with each other, even though we may be thousands of miles apart. But there's something else that I've noticed in having these opportunities and having these experiences. One of the first things I've noticed is in our culture, we seem to be most concerned with with time, setting, and presentation of our worship. When in their cultures, that's not even on the table. And then the second thing that I, I feel like God has brought to my heart and brought to my attention in having these different experiences is that in our culture, we're the most resourced, yet oftentimes the least transformed. And I want to explain this a little bit further, what, what, what I'm seeing and what I'm trying to say. First, first is we're most concerned with the time, the setting, and the presentation of our worship. We, we will not gather to worship Jesus unless it fits within our schedule. And we won't gather to worship Jesus unless we approve of the setting. And when I say the setting or the atmosphere, what I mean is, like the atmosphere is warm to us. You know, we got the candles and the rug. Or it's comfortable to us. Like the chairs are comfortable. If they're not comfortable, you're not, if we just removed all these benches, you'd show up that week and then you wouldn't show up the next week. And if it was hot in here, some of you, like it's been hot a couple weeks, some of you won't come back if it's hot every week in here, or if it's cold every week in here, if you don't approve of the setting, the atmosphere. And we won't worship Jesus unless, unless we approve of the presentation, and by presentation I mean if, if we don't like the music, or if you don't like me and my style of presentation, then you won't come to worship Jesus. But for these other people those, those, in these other places, their schedules revolve around their gatherings with the church. Like they move stuff out of the way just so, they adjust their lives just so they can gather with the church. They don't, they don't squeeze their worship time in just one little one hour block. They don't have these organized, laid out, planned out set lists like we have. Like those things don't matter. Timing is not an issue for them. And the setting and the atmosphere means nothing to them. I've, I've worshipped in different cultures, different contexts, in different settings where all we've had is the dirt to sit on or logs that we could find. And you're outside in the heat or in the elements. Or I've been crammed into a mud hut at night where we had to use candles because we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. Well, I've worshipped in church buildings in some of these other contexts, but their church buildings are, are just like 
mud bricks that they've made themselves and they've stacked up as high as they could. That's the most that they could afford. And it's an open-aired building with a thatched roof just to cover them from the rain. Setting and atmosphere. They don't spend time or money on their setting or on their atmosphere because those things really don't matter to them. And they're not concerned about the presentation or really the performance of who's leading worship or who's teaching. But we are most concerned with those things. We're also most, the most resourced, yet oftentimes the least transformed. And here's what I mean by that. Many of us in here, we've grown up around the church. And so from the time we've been children, we've had access to the Bible through children's Bibles, uh, coloring books that tell us the story of Jesus, Veggie Tales, VBS, Youth Camp, Disciple Nows, all of these things. And today, all of us in this room have access to the Bible. If you don't own an actual physical copy of the Bible, you have it on your phone. Or you can get it on the internet. And not only that, you can get multiple versions, multiple translations, because we have to have a translation that fits our needs and fits our style. NIV, ESV, The Message, NLT, King James. But you go to these other places and they they have none of that. Some of them don't even have their own Bible. Yet, we struggle... We have access to all this stuff, yet we, we struggle so much with answering just the basic elementary questions of our faith. I mean, I can't tell you how many students that I met with this week alone, and I've asked the question, what is the gospel, and how many different answers I've gotten. And by different, I don't mean just different phrasing or different words. I'm talking about different meaning altogether. And you go to these cultures where they don't have all the resources we have, and you ask them these basic questions elementary questions, not only do they know the answers, but you look at their lives and you're seeing they're being transformed. They're being transformed by God's word. And you look at us and and we know so much, we have access to so much, yet we show little transformation. We still act or we seem like or we show signs of being empty. And so we're trying to fill ourselves, fill these voids that we're filling in our life, even though God's word tells us that we're full in Christ, we try to fill ourselves with the other, these other things. We, we have the same sin habits as non-Christians. And we seem dead on the outside, even though scripture promises us that Jesus makes us alive. We recently went to India and had the chance where we're in India. We, we spent most of our time in the city, but on, on, there's one week or one day where we left the city and we went to a couple of the surrounding villages and we worshiped with some of the house churches there. And I want to share just a little bit about these experiences and, and what I walked away from this feeling. Like the first house church we went to, they asked me to preach to the house church, which was extremely humbling for me. I felt like I should be sitting there listening to them, hearing them, because they, the way they worship is convicting. The way they study the word together is convicting. But in this room, this house that we're in and I'm preaching in, there's about 50 people. But I want you to imagine 50 people crammed into a space that's smaller than this stage. And we were so tight that I'm up to the front. I had a chair to sit on. The translator had a chair to sit on. But everybody else is on the floor. Some of them sitting on each other's laps, their legs overlapping each other. And they're so close to me that, that they're, the person sitting here that I'm looking at in the front that's looking at me, their legs are touching my legs. It's hot outside, we're in a, 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 a room, a, a house that doesn't have AC, that doesn't have airflow. 
And you know how long I preach. Throw a translator in the mix and it doubles the time. And yet they didn't, they didn't disengage one time. They were there, engaged. They didn't complain because it was hot. They didn't get up and leave because they were tired. It's incredible. And then we went to the next house church. And there we said, we don't, we don't want to participate. We, want to just, we don't want to lead. We want to just participate. What y'all normally do every, every week when you gather. And it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Again, same setting. We're all crammed in this room. And the way their worship time began was uh, they began to sing songs. And they weren't singing the Chris Tomlin hits. They were singing songs that they had written themselves in response to God and what God was doing in their life. And they were singing because their worship isn't about a performance or a show. It's about the response to what God is doing in their life. And the reality is when God is doing something in your life, you can't help but respond, oftentimes through song. And so they're singing like 50 people, I promise, louder than us. And after they got done singing, the, the, the pastor of the church, he stands up and he begins to ask them questions about w- stories of them sharing faith, their, their faith with people in their village that day, which, by the way, this country is not very open about Christianity. In this particular country, there's a lot of oppression that these people face because they're Christians. So for them to share their faith is a big deal. And yet these people are standing up and sharing stories of when they share their faith and people responding to that. Some of those people were there that Sunday because somebody shared their faith with them that week. And after they shared their stories, the pastor then begins to share a story from the Bible to them because this is how they learn scripture because they don't own their own Bibles. So he would share a story from scripture. And he shared the story from scripture. After sharing the story from scripture, he, he asked somebody in the group to stand up and share the, share the story, repeat the story back to everybody in there. And so he stands up and he spends 10 minutes repeating the story back. And then afterwards, he tells them to sit down. And then he asks the 40, 50 people that are there. And he says, okay, what did he leave out? And they start to say, well, here's what he left out. And then, they, then he asks, what did he add to the story? And they critique him on what he added. And then he says, okay, somebody else stand up and share the story. They do the same thing over and over about four or five times. And then after that, he splits them into pairs. And then they share the story with each other, taking turns. And after that... I mean, this is how they're studying God's word together. After that, he says, okay, now I want to ask you this question. What have you learned about God from this story? And they begin to discuss this in a group. Then he asks, okay, what have you learned about yourself from this story? And they begin to discuss this question. Then he asks, okay, so, so what have you learned that we should do in response to this story? And they discuss the answers to that question. And then he gives them the same challenge that he gives them every week. I want you to find three people this week and I want you to share that story with them. And after sharing that story with them, I want you to ask those same questions of them. And so they repeat that process the next week. They'd come back, sing their songs, and the pastor would say, okay, so tell stories of you sharing your story from last week with people. That is how they learn scripture. And I walked away from that thinking, man, like these people are so alive in their faith. They're so full, full of God's word, full in their faith. And it's so clear that God's word is transforming their lives. What is the difference between what's happening there and what's happening here? And tonight as we continue our study in Colossians, I think we're going to see what the difference is. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, 
according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. First thing we see right off the bat is that God's plan is that we would be all captivated by Jesus. His plan is that we would all be captivated by Jesus, that our hearts would be captivated by Jesus, that our gaze would be captivated by Jesus, that our affections, that our attention would be captivated by Jesus, that our focus and that our worship would be captivated by Jesus. But because of sin, this world's focus is not on Jesus. And because of sin, our focus is not on Jesus. Our focus has been taken captive, or it's been hijacked, or it's been kidnapped by so many things other than Jesus. I mean, this might be the number one barrier standing between the Western world and the Western church truly knowing Jesus. We have so much at our disposal that instead of, it, instead of those resources serving to help us, they actually distract us from Jesus. A couple years ago, 2011, uh, I, I went to England uh, for, for a week to shadow a pastor. And, and in shadowing a pastor, we also, they also set up meetings with me for, with some different uh, church leaders and ministry leaders and organizations uh, in England, London, Oxford, and some of the areas around there. And this purpose of this trip was for me to learn and to grow as a pastor so that I can lead you better. And one of the meetings I had was with an organization called Open Doors. And Open Doors is a ministry that was actually begun by a guy named Brother Andrew. Uh, he goes by that name because in the, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, during the Soviet Union and when communism was a big part of our world, he would try to smuggle Bibles into these communist countries. And so he started this this network of people helping him do this, and this is how Open Doors came about. So one of the big things that Open Doors does today is they smuggle Bibles into some of these closed countries. But the other big thing that Open Doors exists for is they want to advocate for the persecuted church because most people, especially in our setting, we don't even realize that in most parts of the world, Christians are being oppressed and persecuted. But in my meeting with them, they, they began to talk about one of their, one of their leaders in Northern Africa that, that they had just recently met with. And this meeting with this leader from Northern Africa, which is a highly uh, oppressed and persecuted area, he expressed how concerned he was for the Western church. In fact, he said he was more concerned for the Western church than he was for the under-resourced, underground churches of the world. And so they asked, why are you so concerned? He said, because of consumerism. He said he believed that consumerism is the greatest form of persecution that the church faces today. An excess of resources means an excess of distractions from Jesus. And this is exactly what Paul is warning against. This is his cry to the Colossians as he writes what he's writing here in chapter 2. This is his cry to me. And this is his cry to you. He's saying, don't let anyone or anything hijack your heart away from Jesus. He's saying, don't let anyone or anything hijack your gaze away from Jesus, your attention, your focus away from Jesus. Don't let anyone or anything hijack your worship away from Jesus. And why do so many Christians feel empty or at least act empty? You're trying to fill yourself with all these things. Why do so many Christians have the same sin, sin habits as non-Christians? Why do so many Christians appear to be dead on the inside? I mean, all of those symptoms point to one thing, and that's that your heart has been hijacked. I don't, know if, I don't know if you do this when you get sick. When I get sick, I, I think about my symptoms, and I go to Google. And I Google all my symptoms, which is the absolute worst thing you can do if you're a hypochondriac or you're a worrywart. 
But I go to Google and I, I Google my symptoms. And then, of course, like Mayo Clinic or WebMD shows up. And so I get on there and it says, okay, looking at all your symptoms, here's what you probably have. And usually what it says is something like this. Okay, based on those symptoms, you either have a common cold or cancer. <laughs> and so, you, of course, you, you freak out. You're like, oh, my gosh, I've got cancer. Uh, and the more symptoms that you can identify, the more accurate of diagnosis you can get. And I share that with you because I believe that this is a spiritual cancer that's plaguing our churches. Our hearts are being hijacked away from Jesus. And so Paul says, don't let anyone or anything hijack your heart away from Jesus. And then he gives us a few reasons why. You look at verse 9 and 10. He says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I mean, the first thing he says is, you have been filled in Jesus. Looking at what he says there, I mean, going, going back to week number one, we, we saw that Paul's goal in this letter is to help us see how big Jesus is. Because seeing the supremacy of Jesus allows us to see the sufficiency of Jesus. In other words, if we don't understand who Jesus is, then we will not understand what he's done for us and how desperately we need what he's done for us. If our Jesus is insufficient, then our gospel will be insufficient. If our Jesus is small, then our gospel will be small. I don't know about you, but my stomach is huge. And my metabolism is crazy. And I have a super healthy colon, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and I can't tell you how sad I get when I go to a restaurant. That was the most undisgusting way I could say that. I can't tell you how sad I get when I go to a restaurant. And, and I order food, and they bring out my food, and they bring me like this tiny little helping of food. I get so upset, unless they have chips and dip, then I'm good. But I get so upset, and, and what ends up happening is I end up, I, end up, I end up leaving the restaurant only wanting more. And for us to understand to what extent we've been filled in Jesus, we've got to understand how big of a helping we have in Jesus. I mean, it's so significant that Paul says what he says here in verse 9. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This sounds almost exactly like what he said earlier in Colossians chapter 1. And we, and we saw that, and, and one commentator said about that. He says, God does not possess anything beyond Jesus to give to his people. God left nothing out of himself, or God left nothing of himself out of Jesus. In other words, in giving us Jesus, God gave us everything. God withheld nothing from us. We have everything we, we could ever need or want in Jesus. Has anyone in here ever been uh, dehydrated before? Like really dehydrated? Y'all need to drink more water. That's like a lot of people. <laughs> I, the most dehydrated I've ever been, and I hope it's the most dehydrated I ever will be in my life, was a, a few years back when I was in a, in a part of Africa that was, it was sub-Saharan. It was like close to the Sahara Desert, though. And, and during the day, it would be like 120 degrees. And at night, it would get down to like 100. And so like you're sweating nonstop. And at night, you go and you'd, you'd sleep inside these mud huts, and there's no air circulation. And so we just got tired of, like, sweating all the time. So we would just pull our, our beds outside and just sleep outside. But still, we're sweating. All the time sweating. And so we are getting really dehydrated. And, and it got to a point where we are drinking literally uh, eight one-and-a-half-liter bottles of water a day, which is a lot of water. Like, to the point of you're almost getting sick from all the water. Um, but we were still dehydrated. I would give you details, but it's, it's I'll, I'll put it this way. My super healthy colon... Uh, stopped working for about a week. I was that dehydrated. Uh, and other things stopped working too. But anyways, it didn't matter how much water we drank. We were still thirsty. <laughs> 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 it, 
it didn't matter how much water we drank. We were still thirsty and we were still dehydrated. And I share that story with you because it doesn't matter how much you drink of the things that the world offers you, you will still be found thirsty and dehydrated. It's kind of like what we looked at at the beginning of last week. Jesus, he, he says, if you drink of me, you will never thirst again. And that Pastor W.A. Criswell, he challenges us from that text. He says, what well are you drinking from? Are you drinking from the well of Jesus or are you drinking from the well of the world? So my question is, why do you feel so empty? Why do you act so empty? Why are you trying to fill yourself with other things? If you're a Christian, then that can only be for one reason. And that's that your heart, your gaze, your affections, your attention has been hijacked from Jesus. And it's keeping you from seeing the truth that you have been filled in Jesus. And the fact that you've been filled with Jesus means that you lack nothing in your identity. You lack nothing of acceptance. You lack no power from God, and you lack no access to God. But when our hearts are hijacked away from Jesus, we lose sight of that. And when we lose sight of that, we begin to question our identity. We begin to question our acceptance. We begin to question the power of God, and we begin to question God's presence because we lose sight of the fact that we are, have been filled in Jesus. The second reason that Paul says we shouldn't allow anyone or anything to hijack our hearts away from Jesus is because we have been circumcised in Jesus. Now, if you know what that word means, uh, guys in this room, whenever that word is heard, we just kind of quench because it just hurts to think about. Um, I, going back to actually the same time I was, I was in this part of Africa, dehydrated and things stopped working, uh, we were invited to this, uh, to this dance party, which was not a good combination with being dehydrated and also just with me, period. And so we get invited to this dance party. We had no idea, no, no concept for what this was going to be like. And so we show up. Uh, it started supposedly at noon that day. We, show, we showed up about 4 o'clock that evening. And when we show up, there's like 200, 300 people there. And so they're, they're dancing, and they're going crazy. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. And they pulled me right into it, and then it got unawesome very fast. And... Uh, <laughs> But so we're dancing for a while. We dance for like two hours, no joke. And then after that, uh, we take a break and uh, to eat goat. And I don't know how many goats it took to feed everybody, but we ate goat. And then after that, we go back to dancing some more. And uh, at this point, in the middle of this part of dancing, uh, this this guy who was dressed in this it was basically like this guy dressed in this terribly scary yeti slash Halloween looking outfit comes out, and he's he's got like this fur hanging off of him, and these strips of brown cloth hanging off of him, and his face is covered, and he's got these like holes here, but you can't really see through, and he's got this belt around him, and there's a, a, there's a knife, like a big knife hanging through his belt, and he would come around, and he starts like, all the kids would run away from him, and we're like, what is this? This is kind of creepy. Uh, what's going on? And so that's when we f- figured out what was going on this whole time, and what we had actually been doing this whole time. They were having a dance party uh, to worship the circumcision god, and so this whole time we're dancing, and uh, with them to the circumcision God, and I'm not sure what the whole eating the goat part was all about now, but so anyways, this was a, this was a big worship event uh, for the circumcision God, and basically what would happen is the circumcision God, once we figured out it was the circumcision God, and whenever he got close to us, we're like, turn our back to him, like, walk away, you know, comes back, oh, okay, you're gonna go over here, um, oh, there he is again, you know, uh, 
spin move, uh, B button for all you uh, NFL whatever players. Um, but anyway, so once we figured this out, like we realized what was happening is he was going around, and the reason the kids were so scared, specifically the boys, is because he was going to take one of the boys, and they would circumcise him, and then they would take him out into the wilderness and leave him for like a week, and that was his passage from being a boy to being a man. And this dance party was going to continue for 24 hours. So it began at noon that day and was going to last till noon the next day. You're cringing because it is really sad, especially when you see how dull that knife was. Circumcision is a terrible thing, but, but what Paul wants us to see in this text is the reality of the fact that we as Christians have already been circumcised in Jesus. I, w- I want you to see this. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says, in, in Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What Paul's referring to here is he's referring all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 where God makes a covenant with who? Abraham. And he tells Abraham, look, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, so many people you won't even be able to count. And he says, this is my covenant with you. And now I want you to take yourself and all the males in your family and I want you to circumcise them. And every male from here forward, I want you to circumcise them. So Abraham was 99 years old. And he went and circumcised himself. And then he takes his son. His only son at this point was Ishmael, who was 13 years old. And he takes him and circumcises him. Then he takes all the other dudes that were part of his family, and he circumcises them. This had to have been like the worst day ever in their family. But listen to what Paul says in verse 11. He says, in him also, in Jesus, you were circumcised. With the circumcision made without hands, praise God, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I have an entry in my journal. I'm going to share for my journal tonight, actually twice. This is the first time I'm going to do it, so whatever that means. But this is an entry from my journal from June 7th, 2012, and it says this. I've never really noticed the significance of this verse before. And I quote the verse, In him you were also circumcised. It says, Remember the requirements of the old covenant made with Abraham. All of Israel had to be circumcised. But now under the new covenant, all Israel, the new Israel, still must be circumcised. But that circumcision is not physical. The physical circumcision of the old covenant was only symbolic of this new circumcision. So scripture says, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature. In other words, no longer is the cutting off of the foreskin necessary to abide by this covenant, but the cutting off of the sinful nature. Did the Israelites keep their foreskins after they cut it off? No. Like I've heard of moms keeping umbilical cords after they fall off and stick them in their baby book. That's disgusting. (laughs) But you definitely don't keep foreskin. You throw that junk away. (laughs) So did the Israelites, back to my journal here, did the Israelites keep their foreskins after they cut it off? This is really significant. And the answer is no. They threw it away. And so the follow-up question is, do we keep our sinful nature after it has been cut off? No. It's thrown away. And that is significant. That's a huge deal. In fact, God takes it a step further, and Paul tells us how God takes it a step further. You skip down to verse 13. In the second half of verse 13, it says, Having for God, having forgiven us, All our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Going back to my journal, this is from August 14th, 2012. It says, the phrase that is translated, he set aside, is actually literally translated, he lifted it out of the middle. In other words, the sin and debt was at my core. It was in the center of my existence, but God removed it. Then, for it to say he nailed it to the cross means that he ripped it out of my core and he executed it. He killed it. He destroyed it. And when something is destroyed, it no longer exists. And if sin no longer exists, then its debt no longer exists. Like it's a big deal for God's word to say that you have been circumcised in Jesus. And if that's the case, then why do you live as though you haven't been? And why do you have the same sin habits as non-Christians? And why do you carry around guilt and shame for your sin like you do? If you're a Christian, it can only be for one reason. Your heart and your gaze and your attention and your focus has been hijacked away from Jesus. And when your heart and your gaze and your attention, your focus, your worship is hijacked away from Jesus, you lose sight of this fact. There's a third reason why we shouldn't allow anyone or anything to hijack our hearts away from Jesus. And that's because we have been made alive in Jesus. You have been made alive in Jesus. Look at verse 12 of Colossians. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, him being Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. The first thing Paul does is he reminds us of baptism. Do you see that in there, verse 12? He says, having been buried with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God. He reminds us of baptism. The reality is if you're a Christian, you've been baptized with Jesus. And I'm not talking about baptism in water yet. The reality is if you are a Christian, you have been baptized with Jesus in his death and resurrection. In other words, you have joined him in his death and resurrection. His death becomes your death. His resurrection and new life becomes your resurrection and new life. And so the reason that we do baptism the way that we do in the water where we immerse you underwater and pull you back up is because it is symbolic of what has already happened in your life if you're a Christian. And so when we stand up there in the water and somebody stands before the church and says, this is my testimony. This is what Jesus has done in my life. This is who I was before Jesus. This is who I'm now because of Jesus. Then we take that person and we dunk him under the water. And the reason we dunk him under the water is because Romans 6 says and Colossians 2 says that if we've put our faith in Jesus, we've joined Jesus in his death. And just like Jesus died, he was buried. And going under the water is symbolic of that burial. But you don't stay under the water because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. 
We pull you up out of the water because it's symbolic of the fact that now because of Jesus, not because of you, but because of Jesus, you are now alive because he rose from the dead. That power that God used to raise him up from the dead is the same power that exists in you because of Jesus. And there's a reason that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. He starts off saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because he wants you to know who he is. And some of you treat that command like you don't know who he is. He's got more authority than your daddy. He's got more authority than your teacher or your coach or whoever. And yet, some of you just kind of brush that aside. And then he gives the command, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How in the world can you be a disciple maker if you have not yet followed the Lord in baptism? How can you follow Jesus' command? And let me tell you why he tells us to get baptized. It's not just so he can do this power trip. I've got all this authority. Now do what I say. It's because it's a visual picture that he wants everybody to see. He wants you to see it when you go through it. And he wants all the people that are there to observe it to see it when you go through it. Because some people are visual learners. And when they see what Jesus has done in your life and done for them on the cross many people will be drawn to the cross and drawn to Jesus because of that. Scripture says that Jesus must be lifted up, and when he's lifted up, people will be drawn to him. For those of you who are Christians in this room, and up to this point in your life you've chosen not to get baptized, I want you to, I want you to hear this. That is one of the most prideful and selfish decisions that you can make because what you are saying is you are putting yourself above Jesus. Instead of lifting Jesus up, you would rather lift yourself up. Jesus tells you to get baptized because he wants you to lift him up. But the second thing that, that, that Paul says in, in verses 12 through 15, uh, just look at the verbs, starting verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in who? Jesus. Look at all of the verbs in there. Is there anything unique that you notice in all of those verbs? There's one verb that is completely different from the rest, and it's the very first verb. It's the verb that says, You who were dead. You were dead. That one's uniquely different than all the verbs that follow because that is the only verb where you and I are doing the action. In other words, what Paul is saying, what God's saying through Paul is, congratulations, you've gotten yourself this far. Let me take it from here. And listen to where God takes it through Jesus. He says, you who were dead, God made you alive together with Jesus having forgiven you of all your trespasses, having canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set aside your sin, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, and he disarmed the authorities, and he put them to open shame, and he triumphed over them through Jesus. 
Every single verb after that one where it says you who are dead is God doing the work through Jesus. Everything else has been done through Jesus. You have been made alive in Jesus. And knowing that to be true, why then do so many Christians, some even in this room, and why is it that so many churches, and I pray that it's not this ministry, seem so dead? If you're a Christian and you seem dead, there's only one reason that can be the case. Your heart and your gaze and your attention and your focus and your worship has been hijacked away from Jesus. I feel like Paul's super clear. We've been filled, we've been circumcised, we've been made alive in Jesus. These things aren't things that could be true. These things are things that are true of every Christian. And so I go back to that church in India, and I look at them, I see how alive they were, how full they seemed, and how transformed their lives had been. And then I look at us and how so many of us, we seem empty. We seem dead. And there doesn't seem to be just a ton of transformation. And I, and I, I can't help but ask, and why is the question, or why is that? I can't help but ask the question, why is that? And I feel like the answer is totally clear. Our hearts have been hijacked away from Jesus. Our gaze, our attention, our focus has been hijacked away from Jesus. And so how do we, how do we guard our hearts from being hijacked? How, how do we guard our hearts from being taken captive, just like he says in verse 8? And it all goes back to what he says right before that in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How are we to guard our hearts from being hijacked? And he says very clearly, walk in him. Specifically, walk in him, being rooted and built up in him. And so we have to ask the question, what does it look like to walk in Jesus, being rooted and built up in Jesus? Paul uses this image of a tree being rooted for a reason. Now you could draw probably some different conclusions from this, but I think the very clear main conclusion that Paul wants us to see is this. A tree that is deeply rooted in something does not move. Like when you leave tonight, go to one of these trees that's out in the parking lot and try to move it. It's not going to work. Now, if like 8, 10, 20 of y'all get at it or back your truck over it, I'm going to get in trouble tomorrow. Don't do that. But a tree that is deeply rooted in something, it doesn't move. And the way we protect our hearts from being hijacked away from Jesus is we plant ourselves in him. We sit in his presence. Can I tell you a word that's been on my heart this week? Because this has been hard for me to get up here and teach you because this is me. I need to linger in his presence. We're so quick to get there and leave. We need to linger in his presence. We need to live in his presence. We need to redirect our gaze at Jesus and not look away. The gospel isn't something that only affects our past and our future. It's something that affects us right now. And remember Paul's prayer. Beginning of this letter, it's our prayer. It's my prayer for you, for us as we study this, that we would grow in our knowledge of the gospel, be empowered by the gospel so that we can live lives worthy of Jesus. And you look at what he says at the very beginning of verse 6. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That part, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, is super important. Because your salvation was not based on your performance, but on Jesus' performance on the cross. 
And in the same way, your endurance in the faith isn't based on your performance, but on Jesus' performance. And that's why it's so important that we redirect our gaze at him, because when we redirect our gaze at him, we'll recognize that Jesus is our only hope. We'll, We'll recognize and remember that we have been filled to the fullest in Jesus. We'll recognize that we have been circumcised in Jesus, and we've been made alive in Jesus. So my challenge to you this week is to hear this and to see that we've got to plant ourselves in the presence of Jesus. Linger in his presence. Take out his word and linger in his presence. Remove all the distractions and sit in his presence. Pray in his presence. Communicate with him in his presence. I know I needed this this message this week. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come to you humbly in this moment, recognizing.